you want Look, to start. I just want to get the whole fucking thing over with. Can you understand that? Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm pointedly glinting extra-wide wedding band Sarah D. Bunting, and I am joined today by the wind beneath my lavender scarf, Mark Blankenship. Hello, Mark! Sarah, it's you? I'm sorry, I just didn't know who was in my yard. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Before we begin our discussion, today in Episode 5 of 2002's Far From Heaven, a little pod business. Jeb's dead, baby. Jeb's dead. Jeb is not dead. Uh, Jeb has a serious case of score-induced saccharin poisoning um, (laughs) thanks to prepping this movie and um, is recovering at home. Um, I'm joking. Uh, But Jeb will be back for some reason. For episode six on Cold Creek Manor, um, we wish him all the best. Uh, I think he may have something to say about regular Quaid feature, The Elementary Dilemma, and uh, hopefully he'll drop, uh, his, drop his comments in. Okay, um, before I get into a plot summary, Mark, what is your history with Far From Heaven? Had you seen it before? Did you like it when you first saw it? Give me a little, give me a little context. Yes, I saw this movie in the theater in 2002, and I liked it at the time. And then in 2013, at Playwrights Horizons, I saw the stage musical adaptation starring Broadway's own Kelly O'Hara. Okay. How, how'd so, that go? The guys who wrote that musical, Scott Frankel and Michael Corey, are really very good songwriters uh, and musical theater librettists. They wrote a wonderful show based on gray gardens actually that is a fantastic musical okay but this musical i thought didn't ultimately work because to me one of the things that does work about far from heaven is that the moments where the characters can express what they otherwise must repress are so brief that they become more powerful right in a musical when you have a character express what they otherwise must repress it takes four minutes (laughs) or more So what ended up happening, I thought, was it threw off the dramatic balance of the story to have so much of the repressed stuff coming out in lengthy songs, um, and it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that that actually makes sense. Um, I'm not sure that some of the some of the ways in which the repression is stylized here um, work completely either. But um, let me get into a plot summary, which um, comes from my review of it for tomatonation.com. We'll link that in the show notes. I did not get around to seeing this movie until uh, 2012. Um, I had a recurring feature on TN called the uh, Crushed Film Festival, in which I reviewed um, movies that I only watched because someone I had a crush on was in them and then rated it on a scale of one to 10 of how embarrassing it was. At least this time that it was a nice low score, like a one, because this is a, you know, wonderful, thoughtful Hollywood picture. But I, I still had some doubts about it. So here's what I said at the time. Kathy Whitaker, Julianne Moore, has the perfect late 50s life, married to a TV company executive, Dennis Quaid, admired by friends and society page scribes for her flawlessly production-designed party-throwing and homekeeping, insulated from irresolvable realities by a baffle of crinolines and marcelled hair. Of course, the hubby does stay late at work a lot, 
and she treats her fairly well-behaved kids like extras who keep straying off Mark, and the housekeeper, Sybil, Viola Davis, can scarcely control the high-velocity girl-please looks ricocheting around the background of various shots, but other than that stuff, everything's just peachy, darling, right? Yeah, no. At a mid-afternoon daiquiri party, Kathy has to squelch her surprise at learning that other husbands want it once a week, sometimes more. Her own husband seldom wants it at all, not from her. When he stays late at work, he does it to make out with dudes. And when Kathy busts him with a hand inside another gentleman's pants, the ensuing psychiatry predictably fails to, quote, cure him. Increasingly alienated from her husband and in turn from the friends in whom she can't confide about Frank's, quote, problem including the excellent Patricia Clarkson as Eleanor, Kathy forms an unlikely and unacceptable friendship with gardener and magical black man Raymond Deegan, Dennis Haysbert. It's that socially impossible bond that threatens the fabric of Kathy's carefully sewn life and may reveal that underneath that fabric isn't nakedness, but simply nothingness. There is more plot, but I won't spoil it. Uh, basically, you know, nobody's happy at the end. Except maybe Frank's very young boyfriend? Spoiler? Um, do you think that I've missed anything plot-wise? Uh, just... I would... Just that the, uh... Repercussions against the Black characters uh, get pretty intense. But... Yes. That's, I guess, implied in what you said. Yes, they do. Um... Contemporary reviewers, on the whole, liked this movie or responded to it pretty positively. Uh, I believe that Julianne Moore lost the Best Actress Oscar to whoever was up for it in that she lost in Chicago. the Best Actress Oscar to Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Oh, why did I think it was Chicago? Well, Chicago was Best Picture that year, but mm. Renee Zellweger also lost the Best Actress Oscar to Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Okay. Enter, enter Putty Nose. Got it. Yes. Um, Roger Ebert gave it four stars. A.O. Scott in The New York Times really liked it. Um, but my response to it was closer to Stephen Hunter's in The Washington Post. Quote, with its stilted dialogue not quite kitschy enough to be funny and not quite authentic enough to be realistic... The whole movie feels as if it's taking place in formaldehyde. I'm certain that was Haynes's point, but somehow you're exiled by his ironic distance, his formalities, his sense of study. And it's somehow more 50s than the 50s themselves were. That's because in the 50s, of course, no one knew it was the 50s. It wasn't anything, it just was. Moreover, it was never so pure as this. Rather, the shabby, messy struggle that was reality then, as now, was clotted with memory and residue. Old cars, old houses, old furniture, old clothes, old human beings. Reality was a reliquary of yesteryear, not a display of perfect research, end quote. I'm not entirely sure that's fair, but I also... Um, watching it again, I once again was stopping just short of truly responding to it as a as a story versus a formalist exercise did you have that mm -hmm. experience you know that's really fair i liked it more than you uh but i did think about the fact that i was intellectually but not emotionally engaged with it and i remember 20 years ago thinking that too that it was so it's such an impressive sumptuous 
beautifully yes. performed movie. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I was just constantly enjoying its artifice and not connecting with its uh, emotional storytelling. And I was actually struck by Manola Dargis's review in the LA Times because I wanted to see the movie that she described so beautifully. There's a scene where Kathy is standing outside while Frank, her husband, is upstairs having his first therapy session. Mm. And she's flooded. Or then um, it says, as Manola Dargis says, she's tugging at her gloves and coat when the sun emerges, bathing her in light. It's an audacious image. The suburban wife and mother flooded with the sort of celestial radiance that illuminates paintings of martyrs and stars from Hollywood's golden age. And as with the rest of this gloriously generous film, there isn't a suggestion of cynicism gilding the rapture. Then the film cuts away from Kathy and we discover that it's more than the sun that's brightening her face. She's watching a boy and a girl kiss on a nearby park bench. Mm. The idyll lasts only seconds. By the time Haynes returns to Kathy, still standing alone and still waiting, the light has gone out and she's staring into space. The tragedy of the moment is as piercing as her desire. It's as if she were looking for something, but can't bear to remember how it went missing or why. All she wants is what everyone wants, to hold and be held, to love and be loved. And although there's nothing simpler, neither is there anything more profound. Now that's some great writing, Manola Dargis. It really is, but it's also absolutely about Manola Dargis and not about... and. Nothing against Julianne Moore's performance, which is beautiful um, and like horrible also in that, you know, capital R romantic sublime way. I often find her off-putting. This is not one of those times. But I also was finding that in the sort of floridly positive reviews, I felt like, you know, I I think that sometimes people plug into something that maybe isn't there well but i think that you're right but i would say that to me that is a sign of the art working Mm. i think that one of the things that makes this a good film is that it is elliptical and allusive enough to give us the space to pour ourselves into it the way that manola dargis does and and i just wasn't able to do that because the film didn't reach me on that level but as you and yeah. i know from all of the songs that we talk about <laughs> sure sometimes just today in fact as we're recording this we talked about a song that really spoke to me and you were like Meh. yeah um so i i feel for instance when she describes the fact that we cut and see kathy feeling illuminated with radiance because she's watching a heterosexual couple make out I noted that that was what was happening intellectually in that scene, but I didn't feel anything about it. And so I'm struck by the fact that this is a movie that for me does not make me feel, but so clearly makes people feel who are not me. Well, and something that I said in my review, my 10 year old review of it, I think I was actually sort of like struck by how I actually got it right, was that I think that she is in search of something, like Dargis says in her review, But I don't think that the movie knows what it is or if it is. And Mm. as a as an audience member and in this, you know, famously visual medium of podcasting, it's 
it's difficult to explain if you haven't seen the movie, although you could just Google it, click on images, and like even one screenshot will give you the idea. But this is so saturated and oversubscribed with the uh, like um the symbology of color not just mm-hmm. race color but just color col- the like color that, of the leaves the color of the clothes that all they of all yeah. tend to be in the same um stripe of the spectrum when they're gathering for daiquiris or at the art show or what have you um and that they tend to reflect the seasons and that there's a lot of blue light um at turning points for various characters and it's so sort of carefully observed and sincerely projected that even though it it might sound simplistic it's a, it actually works because it like has the courage of its convictions mm-hmm. but for a movie this invested in very simple iconic symbology to basically have it stand for a nothingness at the center of a character with whom we are supposed to sympathize i I think that that obviously worked well for many people but for Mm -hmm. me i was just like i don't like there's no there there possibly which is okay you're allowed to feel compassion for a character who actually isn't who's kind of boring (laughs) but it's like well you know what have we learned you're really right though because the movie doesn't judge kathy for thriving inside of the world where frank and raymond could not thrive it it just says look some people are actually meant for this illusion and kathy is one of them but then when she doesn't have the illusion anymore she doesn't have anything else and frank and raymond uh spoiler have other places to go even if they're sad about leaving they at least have somewhere to go and kathy has nothing except this this is the only world she ever in any way had to develop a sensibility for her because it suited her but now it doesn't and she doesn't have anything left in her identity that might push her into something new and so it's very fucking sad but then like you said there's nothing there so it's like an existential feeling i guess i'll actually might be talking myself into liking it more but <laughs> i might too but it, that happens yeah but like but at the same time in it, it so it's intellectually exhilarating to think about what that means uh for her but in the moment of watching i was just like huh this is fine so it's really weird sarah that i like this movie so much but also didn't really enjoy watching it i like todd haynes todd haynes is maybe one of those like david lynchy filmmakers for me where it's like i'm glad you exist even though fully three quarters of what you do is not for me and i don't want it (laughs) in in my day um todd haynes's um numbers are a little uh, proportions are a little bit better but these are there are some stunning performances here it's beautiful Mm -hmm. to look at sometimes i felt like it could have been like the dramatic irony could have been pushed harder but as we've been saying the character at its center is unblissfully unaware of everything she's unaware of so i think it was not possible for haynes or the writing ever to wink at anything that was happening and i think that's a smart choice but he Mm -hmm. also doesn't make people's attitudes of the time 
too caricatured. And as you said, he doesn't make fun of Kathy for just being like, oh, well, you know, we'll send Frank to a psychiatrist and he'll take the homosexual cure and everything's going to work out. Um, I just feel like maybe some of these performances and some of this production design, which, by the way, I was like pricing every single thing in the Whitaker's living room, like the sunburst clock. Perfect. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this this person's um, naivete, but also that behind that, it's like, what what is there? Like, even she doesn't know. And she's completely alienated from her family as other people. And this is, oh my God, now that we're really so talking about this. So it's very sad. Now that we're talking about this, I actually see that this movie, I think, has been misidentified as a melodrama. It is. It has melodramatic qualities, but there's an existential horror at the center of <laughs> yes. this movie. Yes, there is. That is not melodramatic. It, it, melodrama is about releasing emotion in a way that is pleasing, even if the emotion is sad. Mm-hmm. And this is about, oh my God, she has literally nothing. It's like, no wonder this is made by the same guy that made the movie safe. Yeah. I'm thinking about this now, you know, like this is, this is like some, uh, some hell is other people level Sartre. Like, uh, it's really like, no, this is actually helping me understand why I had a hard time connecting with it because I don't believe that life is like this, even for people who have their illusions shattered. I actually don't believe that there are people who have literally nothing inside them and call me naive if you will but like my i i i can't as the person that i am subjectively feel too emotionally connected to a story that is so hollow at its center but i can certainly appreciate intellectually and feel excited by the work that is accomplished here even if i don't feel that that story coheres with my worldview yep i agree um and like I said, there are moments in it where you admire, like you look at the difficulty rating and you're like, that there were like a dozen ways that this scene should have been awful. And even though you may you might not necessarily be thrilling towards or cringing away from whatever's happening, even if it's a more intellectual response, you got the response is respect. Um, I'm gonna play a clip. In which um, your queen and mine, Patricia Clarkson, oh yes, who is you know her supposed to be Kathy's very best friend, Elle, but like I think the level of their friendship is exists at like I am lending you this charger for a cocktail party, mm-hmm. and nothing real is being spoken about, and when it is, Kathy is abandoned um, afterwards. But here is a here is Kathy sort of maybe trying to test the waters. Um, in regards to Frank's quote problem. Though I'm sorry to say Mona Lauder will be attending. Turns out her uncle's in town, some hotshot art dealer from New York. I think I met him at one of Mona's soirees. Bit flowery for my taste. How do you mean? Oh, you know, a touch light on his feet. Oh, you mean... Yes, darling, he's one of those. Of course, I could be mistaken, just an impression I got. Mm -hmm. You don't care for them particularly? Well, no, not particularly. Not that I actually know any. Call me old-fashioned. I just like all the men I'm around to be all men. Say, why the third degree? It's not the third degree. I'm just interested. That's all on your views. 
I mean, God, hearing them speak without visuals, it really makes you hear that they're in the same movie, but that Patricia Clarkson is attacking that language very differently than Julianne Moore. Mm-hmm. It's very, oh, yeah. Julianne Moore is so up in the clouds and Patricia Clarkson's like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's sort of like that throughout, but, mm-hmm. you know, Patricia Clarkson also, like, this is a character that if you had to sort of describe her, guess what astrological sign she was, you would have some idea because you don't feel like she's only reactive. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kathy is like, like foosball like plastic foosball player like only goes side to side only turns the one direction is not talking to the other foosball players on the on the um stalk with her i mean the more i think about it the more i think you're absolutely right that this this is packaged as like an homage to a melodrama but there's a reason that the reviews use the word tragedy yeah it really is. With that said, I here's the other problem. Dennis Haysbert is, I think, well cast and he's good. But we have a couple of problems here. First of all, that I think the problem of, quote, problem of Kathy associating with a man of color in this time period and the, quote, problem of Frank's sexual expression are are trying to double each other in ways that don't quite work for the time Mm. period um the other problem is that uh in the years between when this came out and now we've become accustomed to a rather different dennis haysbert here is a clip accident forgiveness will keep his rates from going up just because of an accident oh but not his blood pressure michael james Ooh, middle name, not good. (laughs) I mean, I love Dennis Haysbert. I think he's a fox. I don't think anyone is incorrectly cast here, actually, um, which was not my opinion of it 10 years ago, I will say. But the the point is that he's a a magical black man, and I understand that. Like, I I understand narrative grammar, and I, I live in the world, but... That's that's another realm in which I had difficulty emotionally responding to the doomedness of that relationship. How did you feel about their chaste romantic connection? I, I, I have to say, I don't remember how I felt 20 <laughs> years ago, but I do know that now I was just kept thinking, could he be like one degree less perfect in every yes, conceivable way? Something. Uh, the man has a master's degree. He owns a business. He has opinions about modern art that are well articulated and right on point. Mm-hmm. He's the perfect father. Like he's just he looks good in a hat. You know, one of the things that is true about this movie is that Kathy and Frank are paint paintings inside of this world that become real in a way. Mm-hmm. And he never becomes real. He's always still just, a noble painting and i wish that he were given one moment to just not be that yeah i agree um he has a couple of scenes that like when they're um 
having that conversation in front of the movie theater and it's shot in this like almost like reefer badness like the camera is at like waist level shooting up at people Mm -hmm. staring suspiciously at them and then he's watching her sort of scuttle off down the street and a, a wind picks up and there is a novella on the man's face like the acting is good but the mm-hmm. character brief is just a little like i understand why it was done this way but you know take take one perfect thing off maybe yeah it it's just clearly it comes across as a movie for white people yeah in which black people exist to make a point mm-hmm. and white people exist to develop and change. Yeah. Like let's um let's have the musical um based on this story written entirely from Sybil's perspective because oof. Right. And oh also one of the things that's fun about seeing a movie for the first time in 20 years I didn't know who Viola Davis was in 2002, <laughs> uh-huh. but now it's like, oh shit, hey. Yeah, like, Sybil, can you take the reins of this movie? I mean, I feel like my rating, which I like wrote down before we started recording, um, I feel like I'm going to revise it upward based on this conversation, but I still, at the end of the day, that movie that some critics saw and were... I think left emotional rubble in the wake of I did not I did not see that movie but I think that movie does exist and I I salute it even though I did not see it. Mhm. So I am prepared to give a rating on a scale of 1 to 10. Would you like to go first or shall I begin? Uh I will go first. I will acknowledge and honor the 10 that one might give this film, mm-hmm. but I will give this movie a 7. I too will give this movie a seven. Oh, I mean, if it's just, if you're watching it on mute and you're sort of not aware that it's like an 11 and a half, but yes, you're not maybe even a 15. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hello, it's Jeb. I missed being able to sit in on the recording of this episode because I lost my voice, but thanks to modern technology, I am coming to you from across the mists of time and the vacuum of deepest space to give you my rating because Sarah and I are boldly going to be completists about Quaid in full. First up, Mark, sorry I missed you, and I really enjoyed hearing you two discuss this because you echoed a lot of feelings I had about it. One thing I will say, tacked onto your takes, is that Kathy's status, even to Raymond throughout their emotional affair as Mrs. Whitaker, is I think a telling touch about how we're meant to understand her character in the film. As you both said, she's done well in her little box's lifestyle and she's been happy, but again, as you said, she treats her kids like extras in this movie and she doesn't understand her husband even down to his own identity. Even with the vibrancy she experiences with Raymond, it seems to come more from his interests and kindness radiating at her and warming her. In contrast, we see her husband, who is materially rich, breaking down after confronting the spiritual and emotional bankruptcy of his life and beginning the journey of becoming a full person. Meanwhile, Raymond is a whole person. He doesn't have a partner, but he's educated, he's warm, he's happy, he's prosperous, a loving dad, and he's a member of his community. To the extent that anything is wrong with his life, it's because of external forces and personalities acting on him. Kathy, on the other hand, has been a kind of Stepford type because others have defined her as such. She's playing by their rules and accepting their identity for her, and that gets brought home at the beginning, I think pretty explicitly, with the newspaper writing a story about her, making her, for all intents and purposes, somebody else's story. 
So by the end, we still have the same Kathy. She has no functioning relationship with her children. She watches her husband leave because he's becoming the person he is. And the tragedy for her is that she can't escape her life by redefining it under Raymond's terms. She's been Mrs. Whitaker, but now that she's lost that, she can't become Mrs. Deegan either. She's Kathy, and we don't know what that is. Anyway, as for the rating, I've got good news. That's right. It's Lucky Sevens across the board. It's a very good movie. It's very well done in most respects, and Julianne Moore is typically excellent. But where I'm knocking points off actually dovetails a little bit in terms of what I'm going to say for Quaid Qua Quaid, so I'll keep it shorter here. This is a very efficient movie in that it doesn't show you really anything that you don't need for Todd Haynes' purposes, but that also makes it feel almost more like you're watching an essay. There's no relief from the point it's making, which makes it almost relentlessly unhappy, with the exception of the scenes where the genial Raymond shines some of his capacity for happiness onto Kathy. Unfortunately, I think the movie really fails to illustrate anything of the sort for Quaid's character, Frank. I don't think Haynes is mistaken in making the world a gloomy and nearly constantly negating and hostile place for a gay man in this era. That's fair, even if it's not necessarily historically categorically accurate, but there's no point in the movie where I could say that Frank feels joy. You never get the sense that there's any reason for him to beat back against the prejudicial hetero tide on behalf of his sexuality. There's no reward there. If finding a partner and getting what he wants is so mulishly grim, I don't know why he would want it. Even though we're meant to see him as trying to confront himself and evolve, he seems to be leaving one alienating twilight life for another just with a different scene partner. And if that's really the case, then I wonder what reason he would have had not to stay with his wife and just keep getting hand jobs near speed traps. Frank's breakdown is important and a catalyst, but that moment's breach of his defenses doesn't seem like impetus enough to make him basically tear down his life. It's like I was saying in episode 2 this season when we did Traffic, the thing Soderbergh got right that many drug films get wrong is that it's fun to do drugs. The problem with Far From Heaven to me is that if this is what finally being yourself is like as a gay man, then why wouldn't you just want to be someone else? All we needed, and it frankly wouldn't have taken long, was just a few more moments with Frank and his lovers or his partner to let us know that at least here together, that big grin can come out. There's peace here, but there isn't. This movie's just way too committed to the shadows. You all about done? Okay, now it is time to rate the film Quaid Qua Quaid. How good is Dennis Quaid? Um... In my review from 10 years ago, uh, I made a number of uncharitable references to uh, things like the Kersmith Memorial OGs, now I have to French a dude on screen face of eloquent homo panic. That was unfair. Uh, I I think this performance is actually much better than I gave it credit for, although he starts out relying on that like jaw clenching that and that he sometimes does instead of just acting like Heath mm-hmm. Ledger can do this and Dennis Quaid sometimes can't but it was a lot it was a lot better than i remembered and i think at the time i felt like he was maybe not stunt cast but cast on the basis of like this is a complete inversion of this specific vulpine roguish heterosexual presentation mm-hmm. i st- i still think that's true i just think it worked a lot better than i thought it did uh 10 years ago what what do you think of quaid's performance sort of broad strokes i think it's brilliant 
And I think it's so essential to the movie that he is the one character who seems like a real person mm -hmm. in here. Like he cannot keep up the facade anymore. And so it's like watching one drop of blood in an otherwise clear glass of water. You know, you just like, <laughs> it's so That's disorienting. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And uh, I think that I'm really glad that you played the clip where he says fuck, mm -hmm. uh, because it's the only curse word in the whole movie. And that is such a nice distillation of how he operates. And when he then at that Christmas time scene tries to turn it back on and is like, oh, mommy, let's go to Miami. It oh. it's so striking what he must have been like before this movie started. Yeah. But because the inciting incident of the storytelling is that Frank has been picked up for obviously getting a hand job in an alley or some such thing. <laughs> but the the Moors of the time have politely allowed him to say that he was a little too drunk behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. And he's he's been broken out of the he's been broken out of the illusion from the beginning. But you do get that glimpse of what it must have been like before. And I think that if he were not giving such a strong performance, the distinction wouldn't feel so great. And also the scene, you mentioned this in your original Tomato Nation review, which I reread, uh, when he starts to cry in front of his daughter. Oh God. I mean, that is and then she like snap. It's like, yeah. Ah! And Kathy's inability to respond on the level of their pain to either of them is like, this is the real tragedy. Yes. You don't even know that, these people. And they that don't know is you. The ones, that is the one scene in the movie where I actually really did have an emotional response. That actor, that child actor, I mean, could, like, and that is some ugly crying, like, absolute legitimate terror at seeing your father that upset. Which, like, yeah, uh-huh. Actually, and, we have the end of that scene clipped, and uh, I think this is sort of a, the Quaid rating is going to, rise and fall on this clip <laughs> something's happened what <laughs> i've fallen in love with someone who wants to be with me <laughs> Kathy. I never knew what, what that felt. But I, I know that sounds so cruel, but... Oh, God, Kelly, I, I tried. I, I tried so hard to make it go away. And I thought that I could do it for you and for the kids. I can't. I just... I can't. I can't. <laughs> I mean, the sobbing Whew. at the end is like literal boo-hooing that yeah. should tip over into like self-parody. And this is absolutely atypical, like for Dennis Quaid's skill set. But it it works for me. I think he's very good, very believable. I don't know where he went to get this performance. I will also say that, you know, m maybe he wasn't thrilled about you know making eyes at or making out with 
other men, but that's I was unfair to him on that score 10 years ago. But I also think that the movie helps us dimensionalize this character by making him an unsympathetic asshole at times Mm -hmm. in contrast to her sort of like desperately trying to return them to this Eden where she doesn't know that he has feelings for men. Um, And he's just as humanly graceless about that as you'd expect because he's, you know, a person and she is a construct. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I have a clip for that too. If uh, if you'll indulge me, um, of course. The rumors have gotten back to him that she spent the day like taking a nature walk and then dancing chastely with uh, Raymond, and uh, he's using this as uh, he's extremely drunk and using this as a like squid ink cover for his own um, quote transgressions. Christ, Kathleen, do you even have the slightest idea about what this could mean? Don't you realize the effect this could have on me and the reputation I have spent the past eight years trying to build for you and the children and for the company? Frank, I swear to you, whatever Mona Lauder saw or thought she saw was entirely a figment of that woman's hateful imagination. Yes, I have spoken to Raymond Deegan on occasion. He brought his little girl to Eleanor's art show, but but apparently, even here in Hartford, the idea of a white woman even speaking to a colored man... Oh, please, just save me the Negro rights! You know what that woman is capable of! Besides, I, I've already given him notice and we we won't be seeing that man again. Fine. I mean, there is a moment here. First of all, he's hoarse, so I don't know what take this was, but he found it. Good for you. Um, there is a moment where they're both screaming and it's like, oh, now there will be a connection between them finally they're going to break through and they don't and i think that is the central tragedy in this you know right here in the scene that it's like they're just going to keep being side by side not really making eye contact with each other as people forever and the fact that she doesn't say to him i think that another thing that might damage your reputation is all the cock you've been sucking (laughs) is very telling i mean if i had a nickel Oh, Oh, it would only bolster my reputation, but I work in a godless industry. (laughs) Mine too, as we both may have read in the men's room. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think this is actually, this is actually quite a good performance from Quaid, but I don't know how Quaidy it is based on, I mean, we have some, we have some metrics that we use. How much of the movie is he in? He's in most of the movie. The Tara Ariano uh, honorary does this character fuck metric. Yes. Hell yeah. We, he he fucks for sure. Oh, but Lord, when he's sitting there with that robe open oh, at the pool. Uh-huh. Whoo, child. Yeah. Yes. And there's a, this will be in the visual aids, which you can find at our Twitter account, Quaid in Full Pod. He's reflected in the mirror and then also this boy. I, I mm-hmm. fell in love with someone. This is a child, by the way. <laughs> like, I I mean, maybe I'm just old and everyone looks no, no, 19. No, no, that's a twink. He's, <laughs> he's on vacation with his parents, for God's <laughs> I know. sake. I was like, please stop looking at that table. Oh, no. 
But I mean, the shot is beautiful, not just because of the the old style, like etched glass mirror that is obscuring some of the reflection and the doubling of Frank. But I mean, it's Dennis Quaid with a sidewall haircut. Like, uh huh. Yes, I buy it. <laughs> I bought it. Mm hmm. But that roguish, like, I don't think we see the trademark Quaid grin ever, actually, in this movie. Right. Except... Because he's just sad all the time. Yeah. Except when he's, like, wasted at that, like, work cocktail party that she's been obsessing over for weeks on end. And is like, you should see her before she puts the makeup on. And I'm like, that's not actually a she needs makeup problem. That's a you don't like ladies that way problem. But mm -hmm. okay. But I mean, it's an excellent performance um, that is still not typical. So I'm going to give this an, oh, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to rate this. How are you going to rate him? One to 10. So that's interesting. If I were just rating, yeah, if I, whew, now that I'm clearer on the criteria, it, it, but it is an excellent performance, and I would argue it's among his two or three best performances. I agree. I I don't think it's among his most typical performances, and I don't think we had this um we had this conversation in a recent episode. Like, will this movie be in the in the lead of the obit about the rookie? I argued it would. One of our guests was like, "Nah, I I don't think this makes the lead in the obit, but that's a shame, and it's a shame he didn't get some more awards attention. I know I didn't care for it when I first saw the movie, but I I think it's actually quite impressive. It's just not all that quady. So I don't know what yeah, to do. Yeah, and the irony is that it was a, considered a major snub at the time because he won an Independent Spirit Award. He got oh. a SAG nomination. He got a Golden Globe nomination and then didn't get an Oscar nomination. Hmm. And if he had gotten an Oscar nomination, it would be the first movie that was mentioned in his obit. Yeah. But he didn't, so it won't be. Yeah. It'll probably be like Breaking Away would be my guess. Anyway. Yeah. Breaking Away, the right I'm gonna, stuff. I'm going to say though that i don't want to talk myself out of acknowledging the excellence of this performance and therefore i'm going to give it a nine okay i am going to i was sort of talking myself out of going as high as i came in and i did not come in as high as you did but i'm gonna go with an eight i think it's very good uh, i think it's very tough i think he fucks but i think this is also not stereotypical Quaidosity. So, okay, we're here. Quaid qua Quaid. This is definitely, as you two said, some of DQ's best work. And after going along on the movie review, I won't repeat the praise that you two had for him. One thing I've noticed, though, he has a gesture he does pretty often when he gets mad, where his shoulders drop and he balls his fists and holds his arms down at his sides, but sort of tilted out away from his body, like he's making a capital A figure in a routine set to YMCA. It codes as very childish and very toddlery to me, just because my son does that and a lot of my friend's children have done that. And it's occurred across a lot of his roles and across genres. And like putting his palms on the small of his back, it feels like a dentist gesture transported from real life rather than a character gesture and an acting choice. It takes away a little from the performance, which is otherwise, I think, pretty well observed. He does intramarital anger and self-reproach well. I even thought his breakdown was very well executed. And his jaw-clenching propensity for lower GI tension, which we sometimes call Schrodinger's scat or the alimentary dilemma, it works well in service of a role where he has to be emotionally and romantically constipated. 
But the movie really seems short on any sense that being gay makes Frank happy other than the sex, which we hardly see. He has that electric grin, but we don't even see a smirking hint of it at the gay bar or in the hotel. It's easy enough to see why other gay men would be into this drab Dennis Quaid, because drab or not, he's Dennis Quaid, but it's tough to see why he would like it. And it's a shame that we didn't even get a moment at the hotel after he's put the phone down when he can look over and light his young partner up with that thousand watt smile. So while he's in a lot of the movie and he's quite good in a lot of it, he's not very quady, and we see that angry arm Dennisism again. Still, I feel like this performance really stands out, and even if we're not getting the grin, it warrants recognition, and I'm delighted to give him a gentleman's eight as well. And now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a hat to wear, a train to lean on, and a flat hand to wave out to the side once like a ping-pong paddle as I'm borne ceaselessly away down the tracks. Remember me as I was. Handsome. Bet you'll think twice about striking up a conversation in this bar again, huh? Take care. Mark, thank you so much for going on this melodramatic slash tragic journey with me today. Oh, Mrs. Bunting, what a pleasure it's been. Oh, actually, no. Oh, Mrs. Brady, what a pleasure it's been. And I do hope that we can share a glance later across a room. (laughs) Uh, Before you're pulled over for, quote, driving under the influence, unquote. Ah! Yeah. Of cock. Um, on that note, Mark, where else besides our fine feathered podcast, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, can listeners find you and your work? Well, the best place is at a website called Primetimer. That's primetimer.com. I am the reviews editor of Primetimer and also contribute other thoughts and things about TV. Fantastic. Thanks so much. I hope you'll come back and see us sometime. Next time on Quaid in Full, Cold Creek Manor. In the meantime, take a break from polishing the dining room table and check out the show notes. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. And there's even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund, RIP, and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Perhaps once you're settled, you could go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Sarah and I, we do just fine. <laughs>